Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Within about um, five minutes of kind of, you know, the, the basic chit-chat, I said to her, so I hope that you would be open to marriage and children because that's, <laughs> that's where I'm going. I'm reeling that any of it worked because I never genuinely thought that I would have a baby in my arms. I just don't want anyone else to ever think that they're inadequate because they can't carry a child. Hello, listener, and welcome to Some Families. My name is Stu Oakley, and I'm here virtually with the gorgeous, the wonderful, the incredible Lottie Jeffs. Ah, oh, thank you, Stu. And I am here with my favourite co-host. So welcome to our final episode of season one of Some Families. We've learned so much. There's been some amazing, inspiring people that we've spoken to. And so much has changed. I've added to my family since we started this podcast. I mean, when we first did our first episode, I didn't even know about our youngest. I didn't even know that he existed and he was in the world. So that's been a bit of a whirlwind, not to mention a global pandemic, it's been it's been quite a journey, hasn't it? We like to use that word, Lottie, but it has been quite a journey. I was thinking actually a fun game could be if you were listening to this podcast and you took a shot every time we said the word journey. I would be on the floor right now. It's been an incredible journey. I've learned things that I am taking into my personal approach to parenting as well. I think some things have just really resonated for me that people have said... I remember Kirsty, the biological mother, who said she never tells her son what he doesn't have when they talk about their family. She never says, you don't have a dad. She always says, you have two mummies. And that's something I've actively been trying to do with my daughter. And she's really picking up on it. She's started to say, I have two mummies. Some families have two mummies. And it seems like such a positive affirmation rather than focusing on a loss which I think is really nice and then she's on brand as well (laughs) she's totally on brand and I don't know if I told you this already but she did say the other day some daddies have two mummies oh which is true True. yeah I mean if you spoke to Mike he was a gay with two mummies yeah I was speaking to Mike was a was a highlight what his experience of growing up with lesbian mums was was like what what have been some of your standout moments Stu? 
For me, it's just learning about, I was in such a adoption world when it came to my parenting and hearing from so many different people, yourself included, and hearing your story and learning about donor conception, learning about surrogacy and expanding my knowledge in that area. Having spoken to so many parents or seeing the community online etc I've kind of got broody as well like broody for the adoption system I think it's bring back so many emotions and so many happy emotions of our adoption process and when you see somebody that's been matched and they've just had their matching panel and it just brings all those feelings flooding back of sheer joy and nervousness and all those feelings that I had it just it comes shooting back whenever I see it in anybody else Interesting. Yeah, that's so nice. And I think actually, one thing that I've really taken from recording this whole season is that it's so nice to not be other for once. Like we spend so much time as LGBTQ parents being the only LGBTQ parents in the room and being sort of a bit different and a bit special and the one that people are asking questions of. And, you know, that's that's fine. But it's just felt so nice to just be part of a community where everybody is like that. So I've really benefited a lot from that to feel part of something. So thank you all for listening and thank you, Stu, for being on this journey. It is a journey. There you go. You've got a double shot in right there. (laughs) And we're finishing this series with a wonderful couple that we got to speak to, a very important couple for so many reasons. We as lesbian, gays, bisexual need to ensure that we're supporting our trans brothers and sisters. We need to ensure that we are there to support the T in the LGBT. And so Lottie and I were really lucky to speak to the incredible Jake and Hannah Graff. Now, you may have heard of Jake and Hannah because they are very well known. They are arguably the, the highest profile trans couple in the UK. And they kindly gave us an hour of their time because they have just had a new baby. So they had Millie on April the 14th. When we spoke to them, Jake had Millie on his lap and she was incredibly quiet, but you might hear some baby noises in the background. They are transgender themselves, they are parents, and they're paving the way in terms of representing the trans community and showing people that it is possible to have a family. And for that, I think they're pretty inspiring. There is also an amazing documentary coming up on Channel 4 about Jake and Hannah. It's coming out later this month, or if you're listening post July 2020, it is probably available on 4OD, I would imagine. And we really hope you enjoy this last episode in series one of Some Families. Enjoy, we'll catch you at the end. Actually, we met over Facebook. December 2015, Hannah had just been outed by the Sun newspaper all across their front pages with uh, the rather dubious headline, an officer and a gentlewoman including pre- and post-transition photos that had catapulted her into the limelight and she popped up on Lorraine and I happened to see her one morning being interviewed on Lorraine Kelly's show and uh, thought, who's that rather lovely looking young lady? I kind of registered but then moved on and I, at the time, had just uh, been doing the Danish Girl press tour kind of all around. So we were sort of aware of each other and obviously, you know, as, as within the gay community, if someone says, oh, you're gay, you must know my gay cousin Brad in Nebraska, he's gay too. Obviously that 
that isn't true. However, with the trans community, we do all sort of tend to know each other. And so Hannah popped up on my people you may know, and I added her as a friend. And uh, within about an hour, I got a very keen message back from Hannah saying, you know, been watching all your exploits with, with great fascination. I think what you're doing is lovely. You know, it'd be great to have a drink soon. Love, Hannah. I thought, wow, she's she's a bit keen. It was Christmas time, so you're all at home and you're kind of having your gin and tonic and, you know, it's all kind of fairly jovial and, and friendly. And so we started what is quite easily the most mortifying and embarrassing Facebook message exchange ever. We read them back occasionally now and cringe. They are so mortifying. Yeah. And we spoke over the course of about a week and I kept saying to Hannah, can we please, please get on the phone? And Hannah was worried that she has a slightly deeper voice that I would hear her voice on the phone and be put off and think, you know, she had a man's voice. But obviously I'd seen her being interviewed, so I knew that she had a deeper voice and that had absolutely no bearing on anything. And uh, Hannah kept suggesting we Skype, which is really weird when you've never met. And so finally got on the phone and within about um, five minutes of kind of, you know, the, the basic chit chat, I said to her, so I hope that you would be open to marriage and children because that's, <laughs> that's where I'm going. And she rather nervously didn't hang up, which is impressive, and rather nervously said that she would be open to marriage and children were we to get that far. And uh, we met a few days later under the clock in Waterloo Station and uh, met at three in the afternoon. And uh, we were out on the South Bank having dinner and yo sushi at nine, first kiss in BFI at 10. And we ended up in a, in a rather secret military bar around the corner from Waterloo Station at one in the morning, kissing on a sofa and drinking tequila. So, so I think if your first date lasts for 11 hours, and then I saw her the very next day on the 31st of December, and we have been together pretty much ever since. And how did you feel, Hannah, when Jake said on the phone that first time that you'd ever actually spoken, um, do you want to have kids? I mean, it was quite, it was quite an intense moment. I wasn't expecting it. But, you know, what Jake was saying, and I, took, and I absolutely respect him for this, which was, you know, I'm at a stage where I know what I want in life. I do want to get married. I do want to have kids. And so if it's just not, you're not interested, I'm not even going to bother spending my time forming any kind of emotional relationship with you. And we'll just say thanks, but no thanks. So I was a bit like, well, to be honest, I hadn't given it a huge amount of thought because I genuinely thought as a trans woman that I was unlovable, unworthy of love and unlikely to ever have those things in my future anyway so I hadn't given it a great deal of thought but it was a case of well that, you know it sounds nice that was all it was it was just a moment to say okay we can you know we can both go into this knowing that if it does go into growing something else then then neither one of us is going to get hurt later down the line. That's so sad that as a trans woman parenting and and that kind of future never existed for you. I mean it's I mean it is absolutely sad and it's something that you know, Jake and I try and talk about our stories as much as we can. And that's why things like the documentary will hopefully do some good, because there are a lot of young trans people out there and a lot of other non-trans people, but people who still feel unlovable or unworthy of love, who who just don't have this in their in their future at all, in their, in their brains. And that's wrong. Everyone has the right to have a family and have love and be happy. And so, you know, just if we can do it, then we hope that other people can realise they can do it too. Yeah, I actually remember when we were, Hannah and I had been together, for about five or six weeks, she said to me, I never thought, you know, looking back two or three months, I had resigned myself to never feeling love, to never being loved, to never having a relationship, to never having a boyfriend. And I had made my peace with just having a good job and friends and supportive family. And I thought that was a pretty good lot in life. And it honestly brought me to tears that a woman as wonderful as Hannah 
should have resigned herself and made her peace with being alone and unloved for the rest of her life. I just think we know how often that happens within the LGBT community, that people just feel they're just not worthy. And unfortunately, that's, that's society putting that on them rather than them naturally feeling that. And uh, hopefully it's something that will change. Well, you're part of that change as well. You're two high profile figures. You've got the documentary and hopefully that will inspire a lot more people to realise that they can do it. You had that initial first conversation very early on. So then when you started settling into your relationship, did that kind of take a back burner or was it always very full on about children from from the get go? As, as I said, Jake just wanted to make sure we were going down the right path together and weren't like having different expectations. And that path always included us spending time together, going on holiday together, doing all the th- sort of things you do to build a relationship and know that, you know, this is something you want to do and someone you want to be with forever. We were only seeing each other on weekends. And that was, I think it was about that point where we went, what are we doing here? Because we're living separately in different cities. It was long distance and it was hard. And that's kind of when we made the decision for me to leave the army, move to London, find a job in London and get married. The next thing on the cards was, how are we going to have a baby? I mean, even in the lead up to, to proposing, how many times do you think I asked you, if I proposed to you, would you say yes? But then, yeah, as soon as we as soon as we were married, pretty much we always knew that, you know, I think after after about six or seven months, we we just gelled and we clicked in a way that I had never clicked with anyone before. Much as it's great to date women who aren't trans, there was always that having to explain to someone about dysphoria and how it felt and what being trans meant. And there are those moments where you're so crippled with discomfort and it was just the biggest relief to be dating someone who knew exactly what it was to be trans without having to explain it. And then obviously when Hannah left the army after 10 years of service, that that kind of cemented it all. And we uh, we realised that's where we were going. And then, then we started obviously looking for our surrogate. Yeah, I mean, especially as a trans woman, the whole dating someone else who's trans really helps with the family and stuff as well, because it's not just the person you're dating, but their families, their friends, they will get expectations of you. And obviously I can't carry a child, which is why we went through surrogacy. And that is a very difficult conversation to have with someone. So was surrogacy the option for you guys from the very beginning? Did you ever discuss adoption or fostering or any any other route to parenting? For me, I got, you know, I'd seen my sister have two by then and, and there was another one coming and all my friends had, had had their first and their second, sometimes their third. And it was getting to that point where it was becoming quite crushing, actually looking around, seeing everyone with their kids. And I was, you know, single and nowhere near there. And so I thought, well, if I end up single then so be it if I end up not being a father at some point then I would certainly feel like it was a life very much half lived and so I went through the fairly unpleasant um, process of going to the London Women's Clinic and stopping testosterone for six months prior to that and having eggs harvested and you know they they never seen anyone like me and they were very frank about that they said you know honestly we've got no stats to offer you no uh, assurances no anything we will do it if you want us to do it but we can't tell you if this is going to work at all and so went through all of that, not very nice, injections in the stomach, all pretty grim. You know, at the end of the day, by then I was quite happy in my masculinity, so it didn't knock me for six. And managed to harvest, I think in total it was about 19 embryos, of which we I managed to have five fertilised. Because everyone said, look, you know, if you're now that you've done this, if you really want to up your percentages and your chances of having a, a successful uh, pregnancy in that eventuality fertilize them because obviously I think it doubles from from about 20 25% to 50% chance of a successful pregnancy with a with an embryo five day blastocyst 
So I chose an anonymous donor, went through all that and put those on ice. And then about eight months later, met Hannah. And so we had these five little embryos. And for, for us, as I say, had those not worked. And to be honest, I'm still incredulous and reeling that any of it worked because I never genuinely thought that I would have a baby in my arms. It is incredible. And so, you know, we, we had the conversation, if these don't work, we would have adopted, we would have done whatever it was necessary to have a child. So then how was it finding your surrogate? So, I mean, surrogacy in the UK is a very complex beast. The, the laws around it are not very helpful. I think they're due for a review, but, in, but the main thing is you can't pay a surrogate and you can't advertise for a surrogate. And so it becomes a very difficult thing to do to find someone. We, Jake and I, were kind of bumbling around on Facebook groups to begin with, talking to some friends and meeting some people. And you really have to form a relationship. And you know that you've got to go potentially through some very highs and some big lows with, you know, on your journey. So you've really got to be matched with your surrogate. You have to really get on with each other. You've got to like each other and you've got to be happy to have an ongoing relationship, you know, for the, for the rest of your life, essentially. So we were meeting a couple of people and it just felt a bit weird or not quite right or just didn't click with these people. And we were a bit at a loss and a bit frustrated thinking, gosh, are we ever going to find them? Is it ever going to happen for us? And Lorraine is mm. amazing, obviously, which did help. Back to Lorraine. She's like your fairy, she's like your fairy godmother. I mean, yeah, Hannah and her, when, when Hannah was outed by the sun, Lorraine has been incredibly supportive. And we got in touch and we said, look, obviously we're not allowed to advertise. We are looking for a surrogate. And we'd like to raise some kind of awareness over the fact that surrogacy is so loaded and is so difficult here and is such a minefield. And she said, no, no come on and we'll talk about it. And uh, amazingly, after being on, there were lots of calls from lots of women who offered, you know, eventually it was the National Fertility Society got in touch and said, we've got a woman here who we were just, was just matched. And at the last minute, this couple got cold feet and decided it wasn't quite right for them, which was obviously sad for them and, and our surrogate was kind of left in limbo really ready to go and disappointed and then saw us on Lorraine and decided that was that and, and she got in touch and we met and we chatted and we had all of our kind of matching conversations and counseling and she you know she's a pediatric nurse she's got two kids of her own she's wanted to do this for 12 years had no qualms obviously about working with a trans couple which a lot of people did and she was truly the fairy godmother because when we had that conversation, we obviously you were all very nervous, you know, we kind of didn't want to ask and she didn't want to say. And so we, when she eventually said, are you going to ask me? And we were like, will you? And she said, yes, I will. And we were like, oh my God, it was the most amazing thing in the world. And then, you know, our whole journey has been nothing short of miraculous. She got pregnant the first time, which again, we know we are incredibly fortunate. Um, I didn't believe her when she showed us the test on Skype. She had us a little, her little pregnancy test with the two red lines. And I went, can you go and do it again? And she was like, what now? I went, yeah, go on, go and do it again. So she went off, had a wee, came back. Three minutes later, it was uh, confirmed. And uh, luckily, you know, the, the whole thing, other than obviously corona hitting in the last uh, month of it, was fairly stumble-free. And then obviously we, we were thrown into a, a pandemic and things became a little dicier. Hannah, I wanted to ask you about the pregnancy and whether going through that with the surrogate, what your experience of that was like as a woman and how that changed your sense of yourself as a woman or maybe your entrenchment in womanhood by experiencing that with her. 
it's a very weird time. Obviously, one of the things that made it more complicated is the fact that our surrogate was in Northern Ireland. So we did see her for scans and kind of hospital visits where and when we could. We switched her on the phone, but it was hard to form that kind of connection and that bond that society tells you that women have and how important it is. You know, you only have to look at baby books or magazines or TV and they'll all tell you that that bonding between mother and child whilst being pregnant is huge and it's so important and it carries on. And so, yeah, that really played on my mind. And there's an, definitely an element of feeling inadequate, maybe even less of a woman, because that's how, again, how society has loaded womanhood and, and how it's so inextricably linked to the idea of giving birth. So I definitely battled some demons through that process. I tried to stay connected to the process as much as I could and tried to control the things I could. So I was like in charge of admin and getting like all the visits sorted, getting the, all the, you know, the, the pills and the tablets and like a lot of that kind of stuff to do anywhere I could feel connected. There were definitely times where I felt quite sad and like say inadequate. However, the moment, you know, she's in your arms, your little baby and you realize just how dependent she is on you like that first night when jake is asleep in another room and it's just me and her like it's impossible to not feel like a mother it because there's a there's a bond there there's a link there that completely outstrips any amount of bonding elsewhere it's just in that moment she's there she needs you without you she she you know she's nothing what i've really enjoyed about doing this podcast is that I've met so many other people that have experienced parenthood as the other non-biological parent and it's so nice to hear their stories because I feel exactly the same way I'm the non-biological mother to my daughter but I totally agree as soon as you hold her Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. She's yours. And I think because we don't have enough of these examples in society, that actually that's why it's so important to do this podcast and connect the LGBT q plus community because it is such a unique experience and it's just so nice for me to meet other people that have gone through it anybody else that's listening 
you're not alone in those feelings, you know, whether it's you yourself in your situation, Hannah, on that point of view, it's it's Lottie's being the other mother, it's even myself as an adoptive parent, the media and society just puts this huge pressure on maternal instincts being the the one that has given birth to to this child. And I think, you know, all of us in this are proof that that's not what it's about. It's about the love and the nurture and everything that you give to that child and everything that that child gives back to you as well. Absolutely. I just don't want anyone else to ever think that they're inadequate because they can't carry a child or they can't be a mother just because they can't carry biologically. I think it's a really bad kind of message that society is is putting out there and we could do some good by stopping it. Just to jump back just a tiny sec, did you ever consider going to the United States or looking abroad for, for surrogacy options? we were actually we had our honeymoon in Tel Aviv and met a really nice guy who had just with his husband gone through the US route and he introduced us to a an agency out there and we had a Skype with this lady who was very nice and uh, you know she she promised us this and promised us that and it all sounded so great and then we said so you know what would we expect to pay for this and she said well you're looking at probably about you know $125,000 we looked at various other options but we were very lucky we went to spoke to surrogacy UK spoke to a couple of other agencies and, as Hannah said, you know, kind of got into the wild west of surrogacy on Facebook where it all feels very unmoderated and quite worrying and you hear horror stories and realise that that probably wasn't the way to go. So, you know, we were very lucky that the National Fertility Society came to us. But, you know, as you say, it is still very strangely balanced in this country because obviously you can't advertise, you can't pay and when the child is born, it remains, as, as Millie is now, it remains within the sort of legal guardianship of the birth mother. has legal guardianship over Millie at this point. Until six weeks, she is not allowed to sign those rights over in case she changes her mind at any point. So obviously, intended parents are terrified that that might happen. But on the other side, surrogates are incredibly scared that at some point during that six weeks, the parents might decide they don't want the baby anymore. There is a real pressure because what if they get lumped with a baby they don't want so the whole thing whilst it's great that it's not become an industry as it has in the US and Canada and Ukraine it still certainly needs reform. I wanted to ask about the 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 moment of birth and what that was like and whether you were in the room and how that felt. Well so in the run-up to to the birth we've had lots of conversations with our surrogate and talked about you know we wanted to be in the room um, up the head end that was always a plan. And then the moment, you know, she was there, she was going to come to us, do initial skin to skin. And, you know, we'd have her from, from, the, from the start. Not that we didn't want our surrogate to hold her, but we, we wanted to be first. That was always our expectations, our plan. And she agreed with it. We thought, great, that's the plan. And then, uh, I don't know if you hear this thing called coronavirus, um, <laughs> but it, uh, it completely blew up our world, um, both in terms of travelling to get out there, worrying that we weren't going to be able to even physically make it to Northern Ireland because of the travel restrictions that were being imposed to worrying about getting infection. So in the end, we did get out there. We did remain infection free by doing very stringent kind of isolation, but uh, we weren't allowed in the hospital at the moment that she was born, which was a bit frustrating. So we were, our surrogate was induced and she didn't give birth until sort of 48 hours later um, by emergency C-section. But in the end, we were kind of knew she was going in for a C-section. We were in our Airbnb, you know, a couple of miles down the road. 
waiting to find out. And then we just got a WhatsApp message, didn't we, from her birthing partner who said, she's here and she's safe. Honestly, it was the most amazing feeling. I felt so much relief that she was here and she was healthy and that everything was okay. I think it was the first time in months or years that I had actually felt, it's all going to be okay. And then we got in a car and we raced to the hospital and uh, three and a half hours later, they actually let us see her. The way that the hospital saw it was that they couldn't give um, our baby to us because they aren't the parents because our surrogate was the legal parent at that moment. And so it had to be our surrogate that handed her over specifically to us. And then we had, they'd given us a, our own room, the wheel of our surrogate in holding Millie. And then we had a, a very, very beautiful moment. She was about three or four hours old at this point. She held her up to Jake. Jake took her. And we all kind of had this kind of embrace with Millie, with our surrogate, with, with each other. We all cried. And it just, just this sheer, just like moment of, of joy. And then followed by the next six hours in the hospital of just like constant skin to skin between Jake and her and me and her. And it was all just, it was just this kind of relief and joy and just pure happiness. It was in a really incredible feeling. And how long until you flew home with her? We got her back, yeah, 10, 10 days old. And I have to say, much as she slept through all her vaccinations on Wednesday and barely woke up, which is fairly impressive she slept through her entire first flight at 10 days old I think she woke up at the end opened an eye and then kind of closed it and went back to sleep so she's quite the champ our Millie she's is she eight weeks now she's eight weeks on Tuesday how's it been how have those eight weeks been for you they've been amazing I feel like we got into our routine fairly quickly she's starting to sleep in her basket without being attached to us which is such a relief because like the other day Jake and I had a meal together for the first time it was like it's like a revelation. Um, <laughs> but I don't know, it's just, I, it, it, it feels like we've been doing this forever. You know, we're kind of like, you're like wondering, what is it going to be like to have a kid? Everything's going to change and everything does change, but then it feels just so utterly normal at the same time. So let's talk a bit more now about being parents and what you expected you might be like as a parent and what you are actually like and who does what, what your kind of roles are and all that side of things well as so Millie's completely bottle fed um which has allowed us to kind of split the the kind of duties a, a little bit more than it, if one of us was breastfeeding so we very early on got into a like a shift pattern where I would go to sleep at about seven o'clock and would sleep through until about midnight one o'clock and Jake would do that shift and then I'd wake up at about midnight one and then one o'clock. <laughs> Every night was one o'clock. It's very strict about my one o'clock. <laughs> and so I've always had the wee hours of the morning and, and Jake kind of the evening. But I don't know. I, I suppose what I didn't really know what I was going to be like. I, I kind of, there are definitely moments, I, I consider myself a fairly together and pragmatic person, generally speaking. There are moments when I have just not known what to do. She's just crying. I can't understand her. I don't know what she wants or what's not right and just wanting just to like just feeling oh my god I failed as a mother I just don't know what to do what's <laughs> wrong with her she, she doesn't love me what am I doing wrong and all the things of course it's just you know, it's just the way things are and so those those moments are going to be few and far between but I don't know what do you think I mean honestly you know H Hannah always worried about not having that maternal instinct and that bond and knowing what to do and having seen her for the last five years with my niece and nephew 
she I had no doubt that that would all just she, I mean she's the most patient kind caring and you know for, for me this is something that I've dreamt of since I was about 20 odd so this to me as I say every single day I am so grateful and so happy so I think you know much as there are moments when when we are both tired and when it's a bit tough and you know every time we cook a meal she wakes up and screams she, she does have a sixth sense of that the moment like you just want to play watch a film together she's sleeping you want to put a film on or <laughs> and the moment she's like you just move that. She kind of opens her eyes and says, what's going on? How do you, like, I don't know how she knows it, but um, yeah, I, I didn't have any massive preconceptions of what I'd be like as a parent. Um, I'm just happy that she's happy. One occurring theme that I feel that has come up from speaking to all the LGBT parents and something that Lottie and I have felt ourselves as well is the pressure we put on ourselves as, as, as queer parents. And and for you two as well, being such a high profile trans couple, do you feel an added pressure at all in your parenting because of that? Someone the other day said, you know, have you considered raising your child non-binary? And obviously you can't raise a child non-binary because, you know, that's a, an identity. We do get a lot of people looking at us and saying, you know, why have you made a wear pink again? And if we make yeah. a wear blue, then it's why are you making your child wear blue? Are you trying to, you, the, whatever we do, of course, we're being watched. And that's, you know, I think family and friends largely are great. And we've had about 18 bags of clothes from, you know, nieces and nephews. And so she is, as you can see now, dressed in a lovely blue suit with trucks. So, you know, whenever we see my mom, she goes, oh, she looks like a little boy. (laughs) Whatever. There will always be those those people looking in, particularly if you're of some sort of profile and waiting to see what we're going to do to our child. And, you know, idiots saying, are you making your child trans? And just like I'm sure gay parents are asked if they're making their children gay, you know, that that sort of sensible uh, rhetoric. Um, but largely, I mean, you know, we, we've had a massive amount of support. It has been crazy. I mean, we did a, a little video back in Belfast where, you know, we kind of pretended we didn't have a baby and then the baby just popped into the video and people went nuts. And it was just like so much love and support and people saying, you've given me hope. And young trans girls messaging Hannah and saying, I never thought that I would see a woman like you, like me who has got a husband, who's got a child and who's happy. And then we get obviously their mothers, you know, messaging and saying, you have made me realise that my child can have everything that I never thought that they'd have. And you've given me and my husband hope that it could all be all right for my trans child. So the judgment, the negativity, the silliness, whatever, when we, when we receive the amount of hope and positivity that we do, we are incredibly lucky. So I've got a squirming baby on my lap. Waking, she's stirring. Yeah. <laughs> she certainly is. I mean, from my perspective, the only person we owe good parenting to is Millie. Oh. Everyone else can have their opinions and think and say what they like. As long as she's happy, I'll be happy. It's a great attitude to have. I found, as a parent, my eyes opening up to the stereotypical kind of gender world that we live in. And it's not something I really ever thought about in depth until I had children, was it, was it was it ever ever a discussion or was it just something that you never really even I, I mean so the chances are that Millie is a girl and so that's how we're going to raise her but we're going to raise her as a girl who isn't confined by female stereotypes so if she wants to be very active and play with trucks and do whatever else she can do that if she wants to run around push a pram wearing bright pink like our niece does she can <laughs> she can do that as well and if someone down the line, she says that my identity is any different, we will, of course, be as supportive as possible. But honestly, it doesn't 
I know that people will always kind of expect that because they think that trans people want to like have a need or want to subvert gender <laughs> in everything that we do, but it's not, it's just a matter of who we were born as and we are quite often very similar to everyone else in this life. And obviously, you know, having gone through being trans, you know, I knew I was, <clears throat> I knew I was male from the age of about two and a half and it made my formative years incredibly difficult. My teens, my twenties, incredibly difficult. And that is something that we would not want to put on a child because, you know, we want her to be as happy as possible. And obviously we will accept her regardless of who she loves, who she wants to be, how she wants to dress. You know, we will never put any kind of limitations on her and we will elevate her as much as possible. And, you know, I mean, if Hannah has her way, Millie will play rugby for Wales. And uh, if I, you know, I'd, I'd love her to just be creative and, and just be happy. And that's it. And whatever gender roles or anything else that is put on her, we will do our very best to dispel those. And what about your relationship with the labels, mother and father? How, how comfortable do you feel with those? She's got two parents. One is a guy and one is a girl. And so one is the uh, father and one is the mother. That's kind of a symbolised you know, We have called ourselves mother and father and that's how she'll be brought up and that's what she'll know and what she knows and feels, I think, is the most important thing. Obviously, trans women are at the top of the news agenda right now due to a certain author's comments. What are you, what are you talking about? She, she who must not be named. <laughs> but it raises the subject of same-sex spaces for trans women. And I just want to be, can you educate me on what the current status is and if it actually does affect you in a parent in any way, i.e. using change of facilities, etc.? Legally at the moment, we are protected because under the Equality Act, uh, gender identity is a protected characteristic and therefore you can't be discriminated against based on that. So as a transgender woman, I am entitled to use women's facilities. That has been the way since 2010. There's never been an issue with it. However, there has been a surge in gender critical views, um, which are predominantly, but not entirely, uh, cisgender women who, who want to campaign against people like me using women's spaces under some kind of perceived idea that we are a threat. So legally, we're protected and um, we don't have anything to worry about. However, I think the way society is looking at it, the way the amount of noise is being made and the kind of perceptions by society in general are changing for the worst at the moment. And obviously that can be an issue because I have a low voice, so I can be acted as trans very easily. We're also in the public eye, so people might even, it's possible people would, would, would recognise me. And if I'm in a public space changing really or something, then people might decide that I'm somehow a threat. So it's a real messy business at the moment. I think as trans people and as an LGBT community as a whole, I think we need to rise above the, the kind of Twitter-based like name-calling and just real nasty ping-pong of insults and really get back to showing unity and support. And whilst there are, you know, there is a particular author who said some stuff which I deem is very transphobic, there are also a whole plethora of big names and voices who are stepping up and saying, no, I don't agree. And I think that is where we should focus our energy on the fact that there's a younger generation who are much more positive um, than maybe a slightly older generation. So um, in that respect, I have at least have some hope. I, I mean, it is, it is crazy because... One of the arguments that is brought up time and again is that the trans agenda 
is making young lesbians and gay men trans so that they will then become nice, normal, straight people. And it's this really weird mindset that anyone, firstly, you know, young people have to jump through hoops, young trans people have to jump through endless hoops to get any access to hormones and surgeries. No one is pushing them through. Parents, if they're supportive, I mean, there are supportive parents, but they're certainly not rushing because they also know that being trans is an incredibly hard lifestyle. And, you know, having lived, as I say, as a lesbian for 15 years, I know that being trans is kind of an extra step. There's an extra step of vitriol aimed at us because we are constantly dragged out in the media and constantly maligned and reviled and vilified and called predators and mentally ill. And I didn't experience that when I was living life as a lesbian. Of course, there is you know, marginalization across the board, but it feels like there's a very dangerous and very strange argument that this is that this is an agenda to make queer kids, gay and lesbian kids, straight by making them trans. And as we know, that's not how it works because there are gay trans people and there are straight trans people and there are all sorts of people. And you know, I lived as a lesbian for 15 years and I had a community and I was happy and I had I felt like I belonged, but I knew that wasn't who I was. And after 15 years of trying desperately to live that life, I had to face the fact that that wasn't who I was. The, you know, the, the trans female community is the most maligned, most attacked and most vilified of all the LGBT community. And as we know, transgender women of colour in the US have an average life expectancy of 35 years old. They are being murdered at such an alarming rate. And much as 50 years ago, people would look at lesbians and gay men and say they shouldn't belong in public bathrooms because a lesbian is only trying to touch a molest a normal woman and a gay man is only trying to look at another man as he uses a urinal. These crazy arguments that we know as sensible people are completely based in myth. And unfortunately, they are still being given a platform by newspapers, publications and by authors with 14 million followers on Twitter. It's so important for everybody to understand that and for you know for the for the lg and the b to to support the team well that was our first some families newborn baby which was quite exciting and a very well behaved baby as well she was she just slept soundly like an angel bless her yeah and they both looked remarkably glowing this must be it must be lockdown newborn parenting that's giving Maybe. them that yeah <laughs> i just and I know we've said it a thousand times before, but speaking to people who have just been through so much and have been on such a journey to to get their children and you really felt for, you know, for them in the sense of the huge journey they've been on to try and find the right surrogate, et cetera, et cetera. And, and then to have at the very last minute as well, coronavirus sneak in and take away a few of those moments that they'd been expecting to to have had on that journey as well is quite is quite something yeah I loved speaking to them actually and was yet again completely blown away by just how how much some people have to endure I guess to become Mm. parents it just was so beautiful what Hannah was saying about how she you know just wants her to be happy and it's just what every parent wants and again it comes back to that universal unifying thing of like yes we're all different we're all queer queer means different things to different people we all identify in different ways but we all feel the same love for our kids and it's the thing that unites us with 
right-wing heterosexuals and um, people more like us, you know? And I think that's quite a powerful, powerful thing. Mm. And powerful listening again to how somebody... I was thinking how, when we spoke to Mrs. Kasha Davis a few episodes back, that she had the feelings that she was that she was never going to be able to have children but that was years and years ago and and you know for Hannah as a trans woman to only be experiencing those feelings a few years ago i think just shows how you know how much further the trans community have to go to really gain you know the acceptance that we have as a as a gay and as a, as, an, as a lesbian parent and and that was a really a, a, a poignant moment for me where she said that because it's so sad as you said to her that people have to they have to go through that and they have to go through those feelings really hopefully that's something that will get less and less and the more visible that their story is the more that other people will feel that they they can do that and they can become parents Mm. well i can't believe that this has been our last episode of our first series of some families i know and we're here and we're not together because we're still virtually recording i i mean i was i was quite fancying the idea of getting a drink and i want to find where that secret military bar that they mentioned is that sounds <laughs> I actually incredibly... think I know where it is but it sounds <gasps> great well I think we need to make that a date for the diary for the future don't you my dear Lottie definitely and thank you all so much for listening to us if you have um, been joining us for each of our different episodes it's been great hearing from you, hearing your feedback and advice and often corrections, which has also been very useful. Um, So thank you for listening. Mm -hmm. I was speaking to someone the other day who asked me what my end goal was for, for the podcast. And my answer was that I feel that we've already achieved it in the sense of we've already put stories out there. They've already been listeners who have felt that they've got something from the show who felt that their story and their lives and their parenting journeys has been reflected back on them or for people who are about to start the journey they've found some interesting information out that they didn't know before or just finding it useful so I've I've had an absolute whirl on this series Lottie we've got some exciting plans for for series two and I'm excited for that as well and and we want to hear from more people. There's more stories out there. There's more different perspectives that we can look at and discuss. So get in touch with us. We want to hear from you. Um, if you want to get in touch, our email is somefamilies at storyhunter.co.uk. Yep, or you can find us on Instagram or Twitter at somefamiliespod. Lovely listener, thank you so much for listening to this season of Some Families and we will be back in your ears soon. And with that, I think it's time to say goodbye. (gasps) Goodbye. Some Families is a Story Hunter production. Our executive producer is Kirsty Hunter. Our creative director is Az Newman. And produced by Hattie Moyer. When we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods 
for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.